Look, young fella, face it. You're washed up. I has been. I couldn't give any pictures of you away. Now blow, huh? I'm busy. Hello, hello, hello. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things the amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing motormouth Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through the amazing Spider-Man number 18, the end of Spider-Man. If you haven't already, Please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering a comic book pool from High Society's extensive vault chosen by you, the listeners. This week, we're covering Kick-Ass number one where Dave Lazuski makes a wrong turn at Albuquerque on his road to becoming a hero. That's later. Right now, we're going to need the trumpets. For two new High Council patrons, the only Ratchet who's not, Mr. Bot, and Juju of the Juju Crew. Thank you both so much for joining the crazy train. Take a seat wherever you like and strap in. We're about to get this show on the road. And shout out to the rest of the home team. That's the Right Minders, the Big Three, the Key Keepers, and the High Council. Collectively known hereafter as Parker's Eleven, the show Steelers. To you, as always, I say I see you and I thank you for your support. And to you all, I say, you ever wonder what would happen if the whole world took one moment and tried to define you from it going forward, despite anything you've done prior to the contrary or anything you hope to do after? No? Well, we're about to find out. We've got J.J. the Triumphant playing trumpets to Spidey's L's. We've got the return of Two-Gun Marco giving Spidey twist or hell. We've got Flash Thompson staying loyal. We've got Betty moving on. We've got Aunt May getting better, but Johnny Storm, he's so forlorn. We've got Pete stressed over money, image, ego, and Aunt May. We've got a lot and times a little, so we best be on our way. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the amazing Spider-Man, number 18, the end of Spider-Man. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend P. This amazing issue was written by Spucklin' Stan Lee, author of the Fantastic Four. Illustrated by Swingin' Steve Ditko, illustrator of Doctor Strange. And lettered by Smilin' Sam Rosen, letterer of Patsy Walker? Patsy Walker was created by Stuart Little and Ruth Atkinson for Timely Comics and first appeared in Miss America Magazine, number two. Stan and Steve may be shocked, but Patsy Walker is one of the few comic book characters who traveled through history with Marvel from the golden age in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, along with Millie, the model, and Kid Colt. In 1976, Patsy Walker made another leap into the Marvel Universe proper, trading in her teen humor roots for superpowers. Reimagined by Steve Englehart and legendary artist George Perez, Patsy Walker became Hellcat, and now as a martial artist and gymnast with psychic senses and force field generation, Patsy Walker continued her streak of relevancy through all ages of Marvel Comics. If the name Patsy Walker sounds familiar, it's because she appeared in Netflix's street-level Marvel television shows, most notably Jessica Jones as Jess's best friend, portrayed by Rachel Taylor. Patsy Walker, immortal avatar. Back to the cover of this beauty has the amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman above webs. It's colored goldenrod yellow with Spidey red beneath our hero's name. And directly beneath our hero's name, we get two caption boxes. One, a yellow screen box telling us only Mighty Marvel would dare to attempt a tale like this. The end of Spider-Man. The other, a red caption box, is asking a question. Why does Spidey cringe in helpless fear as the Sandman stalks the city streets? Be prepared for countless surprises in this great dramatic offbeat issue. And cringe is an understatement. In the foreground stage right, our hero is huddled behind a wooden plank in an alleyway, 
crouched low in the filth of torn newspapers and empty open tin cans. In the background, stage left, on the main street, standing on top of a yellow car, his left hand anvil shaped, his legs and right arm all sand, is none other than Flint Two Gun Marco, the Sandman. As people flee in terror, he screams unintelligibly. We have no idea what he's saying, but we could probably hazard some guesses. This is a gorgeous cover. Let's see what the Sandman is on about. Let's get into it. We get the sign of the spider in a goldenrod space with the title of this issue beside it. The End of Spider-Man. Beneath it, we're picking up exactly where we left off last issue. J. Jonah Jameson promised to release an extra, and we see he's as good as his word. In the background, we see the newspaper print with the words, Spider-Man a coward, flees in terror, by J. Jonah Jameson, publisher. Spidey has burst through this newspaper page and is in full-on sprint looking over his shoulder at the Green Goblin who's pursuing him, firing goblin sparks from his right finger and charging up the sparks on his left. In the foreground, stage left, we've got J. Jonah Jameson smiling so hard he can't even open his eyes. This is beautiful art by Ditko. Jameson's raised cheeks, his closed eyelids, his ears, his hair, his cleft chin. It is beautiful. The way his finger is pointing at us, he is mocking us and gloating. What a beautiful image to look at. Jameson's wearing a brown blazer, a blue sequin tie, and like I said, he's pointing right at us. True to point, JJ. I don't think he cares. Too true. Back to. JJ the Triumphant has some things he wants to get off his chest. He's screaming. No one will ever laugh at J. Jonah Jameson again. I told them Spider-Man was a heel, a cowardly quitter. And now, since he went away from the Green Goblin, the world knows I'm right. If you recall, we were there and we know why Spidey had to take off, but the Marvel Universe doesn't. On page two, we see everybody's got an opinion on the webhead. First, Green Goblin, both arms outstretched like he's Chris Jericho, his head thrown back, is screaming. I'm the first one to make Spider-Man run away like a whip dog. Now at last, the Green Goblin will be world famous. And Otto Octavius is next. He is behind bars and he is salty. He says the defeat of the webhead should have been his. Craven, in a Captain Morgan pose, follows him, a newspaper curled in his grip, He's saying Spider-Man lost, but he's still at large, so he, Craven, the hunter, should be able to track him down. And finally, Lincoln O'Vulture, perched on a flagpole, is in disbelief. He's wondering how the Green Goblin has done something he couldn't. He has a newspaper in his hand. One thing about these villains, they are avid readers and stay up on the times. The next panel, we see the superhero community dealing with the shock of the yellow-bellied wall crawler. In the Fantastic Four, the Yancey Street slugger Benji Grimm is confused as to why Johnny Storm is taking Spidey's defeat so hard, reminding Johnny that Spidey's number one on his hate parade. And Johnny says, Sure, Ben, we were always feuding, but I still had a lot of respect for Spidey if I hadn't seen him run away with my own eyes. Over in Avengers Mansion, we see none other than the most likely intoxicated Iron Man casting aspersions as he reads the paper. Too bad about Spider-Man. It sort of puts all costume crime fighters in a bad light. Thor says it appears his courage doesn't match his power, and the Wasp reminds them all that spiders and wasps are mortal enemies, so she's not feeling sorry for him at all. And in Hell's Kitchen, we see the man without fear. Of course he's taking it hard. He's based his hosting and heroics on being brave. It's in his tagline, the man without fear. He says his instincts told him Spider-Man was a valiant fighter, and now he feels like his instincts failed him. Even with the average man in the street, Spider-Man's battle against the Green Goblin is the number one topic. And we get an older gentleman, gray-haired in a suede jacket and green fedora, a guy with sandy hair and a green jacket and brown flat cap with his back to us, a brown-haired guy in a gray blazer and blue fedora, and crowd reaction shot legend, blonde-haired Deb in a red pork pie hat and pearl earrings. Of course they're all white, they're always all white. Green Fedora scratches the back of his neck. He must have been in the room where it happened because he's confused. He says he still doesn't get why Spidey ran because Spidey was winning. Deb isn't trying to hear that though. She is going off. J. Jonah Jameson was right all the time. Spider-Man was just a coward like all bullies. Blue Fedora says Jameson was a lot smarter than we thought. And the gloating publisher of the Daily Bugle misses no tricks in publicizing his triumph. 
and JJ is on television in the final panel, still smiling too hard to open his eyes as he gets his rocks off, still spotting what he believes the truth to be, still making sure he can dunder Mifflin through it all. He says now that New Yorkers know the truth about Spider-Man, the mask menace hasn't been seen for weeks, and for all of New York to remember that the Daily Bugle was the first to expose Spider-Man as a dangerous fraud. And while the whole world thinks Spider-Man coward, we see the kid with great power has been missing because he's exercising greater responsibility. He's in a goldenrod vest with horizontal black stripes, a white button-up, SJB pants, and brown shoes, and he's with none other than his Aunt May, who's in a purple full-length dress. So, Queen May today. They're in their house in Forest Hills, Queens, and Pete is pushing May in a wheelchair. Pete's telling May she shouldn't have gotten out of bed, but if Pete feels overwhelming responsibility for his aunt, it's only because she's always shown the same to him. She says she wanted to make sure the kid eats a good breakfast before he goes off to school. Pete rolls her into the kitchen and insists May stop worrying about him. He says Mrs. Watkins should arrive shortly to help take care of May any moment. And of course, Mrs. Watkins walks into the kitchen at this moment. She's got fiery red hair, a chubby face, and is wearing a green dress and blazer with a lime green blouse and a cheery smile. She jerks her thumb towards the door and tells Pete to get to school, that she'll do the dishes as May thanks her for coming over. Side note, Mrs. Watkins is an error. If you haven't noticed yet, Stan Lee was notorious for forgetting names. He called Pete Peter Palmer in the very first issue of ASM. He forgot Bruce Banner's name in an issue of The Incredible Hulk, calling him Bobby Banner instead, an accident that was retconned to make Bruce's legal first name Robert. If you also ever noticed or wondered, Reed Richards, Susan Storm, Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, and other names where the first letter of the first and last name are the same, it was because Stan the Man found it easier to remember their names this way. So Mrs. Watkins is Mrs. Watson, the woman whose niece, Mary Jane, Pete's been dodging for a blind date. Back to. In the next panel, Pete bends down so he and May are eye to eye and goes Aunt May on Aunt May. Now remember, take your medicine every four hours, have a nap at noon, like the doctor said, and don't tire yourself out. But Aunt May's not gonna be outdone. She holds his shoulder and she replies, I'll be all right, dear. Take care of yourself. Remember, you're still a growing boy. The next panel, Pete's in class, his book open in front of him, but his mind is elsewhere. He and May are almost out of money and May still needs a lot of medicine. Pete thinks he can't fail her and thinks the doctor doesn't want her to know how ill she is. I don't know if Pete knows or not, but May should probably get a new doctor. According to the American Medical Association, except in emergency situations in which a patient is incapable of making an informed decision withholding information without the patient's knowledge or consent is ethically unacceptable. This reminds me of the episode of Mad Men when we find out Betty's psychiatrist is telling Don everything she discloses in confidence. I've been digging trying to figure out if this is par for the 60s, but I've got nothing yet. If you know, please let me know in the comments so I can relay it to the people. I'll keep searching in the meantime. I'll keep you posted. Back to. The school day ends and Pete, SJB Blazer Tails whipping behind him, books in hand, is racing home to Aunt May. As a couple of students say they've never seen him move so fast and that he's probably heard there's a sale on textbooks somewhere. Pete bursts through the door of his house in the next panel and is surprised to find Anna Watson still there. She and May are having tea. Anna says May felt dizzy, so she stuck around. And May, teacup in hand, tells Anna not to worry the boy because she's fine. She tells Peter he looks peaked and wonders if he's been studying too hard. In the final panel, after Mrs. Watson's gone home, Pete holds up a bottle of medicine, telling May she has to take her medicine and then go to bed, as May, sitting in front of the television, says fine. She's feeling tired anyway, but Pete's worried. They're almost out of medicine again, and he knows he needs to get some money from somewhere. Page 4 opens to a moving truck passing by Midtown High the next morning. JJ the triumphant face plastered on the side, still cheesing with his eyes closed. The man hasn't had his eyes open all issue. Pete, watching the truck driving by, thinks Jay Jonah is really flying high these days. He pushes the miserable magnate from his mind and enters the school, but when he reaches his classroom, he sees none other than Flash, fashion on, styling, green turtleneck, brown slacks, and draped in loyalty to the web slinger. Spidey's last true fan about to get into a fight with his homie Charlie with the red bow tie. Flash is pointing at bow tie Charlie with his left, his right fist clenched as Bruni in a yellow blouse and dress and Sandy in an SJB blouse and dress look on. Flash is shouting. 
I tell you, if Spidey ran away from the Green Goblin, he had a good reason. And Charlie says, yeah, he had a reason. He's a professional coward. And Flash snaps. He dares Charlie to say it again and says if the kid does, he'll paste him one. Charlie may call Pete puny, but Pete always says exactly what he wants to Midtown High's big bad. Charlie doesn't have that heart. He turns his back on Flash in the next panel saying Spider-Man's not worth fighting about. And Flash is like, yeah, I thought so. Watch your mouth, Bowtie Charlie, and what you say about him from now on. While this is happening, the blonde bandit, none other than fiery Liz Allen, approaches Pete and asks how his aunt is doing. Pete replies, a little better, I guess, Liz. Boy, Flash sure is loyal to Spider-Man, isn't he? Liz says, yep, about as much as he hates you. She goes on to say there's a new Peter Sellers movie at the drive-in that she's been dying to see. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Peter Sellers was an English actor, comedian, and singer probably best known for playing Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther Films franchise in the 1960s and 70s. Sellers was a true acting chameleon, often playing more than one role in film. Some films where he played multiple roles, The Mouse That Roared in 1959, and Lolita in 1962. In 1964, Sellers was convinced by Stanley Kubrick to star in Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, a comedy considered by many to be one of the greatest films of all time, the film was nominated for four Academy Awards, one of which for Best Actor for Sellers, who played three roles, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and the titular character, Dr. Strangelove. If you've seen the Nutty Professor series starring Eddie Murphy, the Austin Powers trilogy starring Michael Myers, or any of Robin Williams' performances where he's taken on countless roles effortlessly, you have Peter Sellers' influence etched all over as all three attribute his acting as influential to their own amongst countless other performers. So Liz is trying to see Dr. Strangelove. She's heard about the Oscar buzz. And Pete says he wants to see it too, but he's got something to do later on. In class, he thinks that Liz is a good kid, but he prefers Betty. I don't know why he's calling Liz a good kid as if he's 30-something. You're 17. She's 17. What are you talking about? Back to. And Pete goes on to think that he can't even bother to think about girls right now because he finally got an idea on how to earn some fast money. In the next panel, we see Spidey, suited and booted, web-swinging onto the scene. The scene? Ace Picture Company, a midtown office building. Spidey scales the outside of the building as he's wont to do and raises the window to the office of a balding white man with a widow's peak and a pipe in his mouth wearing a purple vest and green bow tie in the final panel. And Spidey gets right to business. Are you the one who makes those kids training cards with pictures of sports stars and actors on them? The guy asks who wants to know over his shoulder. <laughs> like people routinely initiate business meetings through an open window. But living in the Marvel Universe, things like this must be becoming more and more commonplace. Page 5 opens with Spidey crawling into the illustrator's window. This is your big chance, fella. How much is it worth to you to make trading cards with my picture on them? I'll give you an exclusive contract. The guy, looking over his photos, says they're not interested and tells the webhead not to slam the window on his way out. Spidey, clinging to the sheer wall, says, Who are you kidding? That the guy's talking to Spider-Man and he should think for a moment about the photos he could get from the web slinger. But the man doesn't budge. He tells Spidey to leave his name and address with the girl out front and then channels BJ Cosmo saying, don't call us, we'll call you. But Spidey's not going away that easy. He stands up straight, upside down on the ceiling, then flips onto the sheer wall, sticking to it with his head facing the floor, then flips off the wall before hitting the floor and balancing on his right hand, his body in a slight horizontal arch, the whole time telling the man that kids would go crazy for photos like these. But the guy isn't even looking, and when Spidey, now back on the ceiling and upside down, tries to figure out why, the man blows pipe smoke into Spidey's face saying, Look, young fella, face it, you're washed up. A has-been. I couldn't give any pictures of you away. Now blow, huh? I'm busy. Nobody's giving Spidey the time of day anymore. Bitterly disappointed, the masked teenager leaves the office in his own inimitable manner and sees a short distance away. Spidey on a sheer wall in the final panel spots none other than the Berber gang on the roof of a jewelry store across from him. Spidey watches the five men a moment, sure that they're not up on the roof to see the sights. On page six, Spidey's about to spring from the sheer wall towards the men into action, thinking it'll be easy as pie to stop them when the thought of Aunt May stops him. He thinks if something were to happen to him, Aunt May would be all alone in the world and he can't take that chance. In the next panel, 
Spidey's left the jewel thieves to their own devices and raced back to the alley where he's left his clothes on a crate near a garbage can. I'm telling you, this kid must always smell ripe, but I digress. He grabs some change out of his pants pocket and seconds later is at a telephone booth calling the police. He tells them about the thieves at the corner of 47th Street. And when the police ask for his name, he says he's just a good citizen doing his duty before hanging up. Back in the alley, getting dressed in his civilian gear, he thinks, Well, it's not the way the Human Torch would have handled it, but at least I'll be able to get right home and see if Aunt May needs me now. Minutes later, he's back at home and shocked to see Dr. Pham just inside his front door wearing a brown tweed blazer and tan vest. Pete goes neuroses right away. But Dr. Pham says calm down that he was just passing by, so he thought he'd drop in. Judging Pete's reaction, he tells Pete he should try to take it easy. In the final panel, he throws his hat on, hands Pete a small doctor's note, tells him to make sure May keeps taking her medicine and that he'll come back tomorrow. Pete thinks the cost of the medicine is what's making him jittery as Anna Watson pushes May into the room, May asking Pete how school was. On page seven, Pete tells her school's fine while turning the TV on for her. May tells him to get upstairs and do his homework before it gets too late, while Pete thinks he's so far ahead of the class he can worry about his homework later. He does go to his room though, and as soon as he gets there, he grabs the phone and wondering if Betty is still mad at him, decides there's only one way to find out. But the goldenrod kid is still under the storm clouds and Betty's not going to bring an umbrella. Pete barely gets four words out when Betty hangs up on him. That's it. The next panel, Betty is sitting at her desk in a daily bugle. She's fiery Betty today in a red blouse and matching skirt. And she is seething. The nerve of him calling me as though nothing had happened. While JJ stares over his shoulder in the foreground, a rare moment in this issue of his eyes open. He asks if that was Parker on the phone and says that he's been in such good spirits lately that he even likes his demon photographer before asking where the kid's been keeping himself. Betty, standing and retreating to a filing cabinet in the next panel, a tear running down her cheek in profile says that Pete's aunt had a serious operation and Pete's had to look after her. And Jameson, cigar in his hand, his eyes closed once more, a hand on his hip says, Really? Well... Never let it be said that big-hearted J. Jonah Jameson doesn't look after the people who work for him. Let's do something generous for them. Send her a get well car. In the next panel, he continues. But don't seal the envelope. You can send it for a penny cheaper that way. JJ may be big-hearted and happy, but that doesn't mean spend a penny more than he needs to big-hearted and happy. He tells Betty she should stop being mad at Parker and forgive and forget like he does. There are two employees standing behind him as he preaches to a crying Betty. Orange shirt bow tie says since Spidey's defeat, Jameson's been the happiest guy in town. Blonde hair, light blue shirt calls Jameson a hypocrite and says he liked the guy better the way he was. And Jameson's goodwill extends to the men. He grabs the blonde by the shoulders in the next panel and asks how his loyal employees are doing. He tells them if they need any help or advice, all they need to do is ask their tender-hearted employer. And the employees are disgusted. In the final panel, one wishes Spider-Man would redeem himself because he's afraid Jameson's face is going to crack wide open, while another thinks to himself that Jameson reminds him of a tiger who's just made his first kill. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity, page. Infinity page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Pete watching Aunt May sleep, thinking he's got to take care of her until she's well again. In the next panel, thinking about how lonely he is, he tries to call Betty again. As the phone rings out, he wonders if she's out with another fella or if she's not answering because she knows it's him. On the other side of the line, Betty stands near her window. Those are some nice beige sequin curtains. But anyways, Betty's standing with her hands over her ears. She knows it's Pete calling, but she doesn't trust herself speaking to him. Her back to the phone, but still looking at it over her right shoulder, she says, I might listen to my heart and make up with him as I'm longing to, but I mustn't. I simply couldn't bear to be hurt again. So Betty wants to forgive the goldenrod kid, but he embarrassed her at the supper club last month. And Betty, the damsel, never in distress, in the fire red dress, will not reward bad behavior. Then, as the dejected teenager sits morosely in his lonely room, his thoughts begin to wander back to the recent past. And Pete, sitting in a chair in a den next to the radiator, holding his mask in his hands, thinks to himself, I wonder how Betty would feel if she knew I was Spider-Man. I'm the one who risked his life so often to save her. Should have told the young Goldenrod. 
and we get Pete flashed back into the next panel, his face in the upper left corner of the box, as he thinks back to his gauntlet versus the Sinister Six in the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number one. That's There Ain't No Punchlines to Fist Flying 2, A Year and Some Change, here on Me and My Friend Pete. Beneath Pete's thought bubble, the Sandman tries to crush Spider-Man with an anvil arm, as Pete thinks he only survived that because he held his breath longer than the Sandman could. In the final panel, Pete continues his inner monologue as he thinks of his fight in Queens just outside of the World's Fair with Craven. He thinks if he wasn't able to outrun Craven, he doesn't know what might happen as the image beneath his thoughts shows Spidey in a dead sprint away from Craven and his two leopards. Page 9 opens to Spidey falling fast, back first towards the earth as he hurls a Honda that loops the right leg of Lincoln O. Vulture. As Pete thinks that if Vulture didn't get so close, if the winged villain hadn't made that costly mistake, it would have been bye bye Spidey. Pete saves his scariest memory of rescuing Betty for last. Spidey is in a pool of water, creating webbing as four metallic arms race towards him as Pete thinks all the one-man hand team had to do was leave him there to drown. But instead, Dr. Octopus was overeager and came in after him, giving Spidey a chance to win the day. In the next panel, we're back in the den with Pete as he stares at the mask in his hands, thinking, Every one of them, as well as Electro and Mysterio, will have learned from that experience, and they'll be harder to beat if we should ever meet again. Pete says nobody understands the close calls he's had or how dangerous his career's been before deciding to turn on the television. But of course the news is on and cosmic timing has placed our hero in the perfect position to have salt poured all over his open wounds. And now our last news item. J. Jonah Jameson, famous newspaper publisher, has been awarded the Good Citizenship Medal for his continuing editorials against the discredited Spider-Man. And Pete snaps. That does it. Betty Brent is mad at Peter Parker and the whole world thinks Spider-Man is a coward because I ran out on my fight with the Goblin. They don't know I did it because Aunt May was ill and needed me and I can never explain. The Goldenrod Kid isn't going to just let the world keep giving him his lumps. He's going to try to fight back and the best way to deal with a problem is to meet it head on. His left fist clutching his mask, he stands and clicks the television off. Next day, outside of the Daily Bugle building. Pete's thrown on his best SJB outfit and he's going to get Betty back, whatever it takes. He's outside of the Bugle just as she exits the building. Betty's crushing the game in a purple jacket, lavender blouse, skirt, clutch combo. Pete raises up to her shouting, Betty, wait, I've got to talk to you. But Betty says there's nothing further to discuss. She races into the next panel, hand to chin, all the way at the forehead. She's pissed. Sheesh. Back to Betty races into the next panel, screaming. You knew I wanted to go to that club meeting with you, and you told me you weren't going. Then I find you there with Liz Allen. Nothing you can say can change that. As Pete, in the background, begs her to wait, but he's caught dead to rights. Unless he reveals his secret identity as Spider-Man, there's nothing he can say. In a great final panel, we're looking through the glass doors of the Daily Bugle lobby at Pete, who's standing in profile with his hands in his pockets and his head down. He's thinking, how can I tell her I couldn't take her? Because I had to change to Spider-Man, and I didn't go with Liz. I just met her there. When none other than JJ the Triumphant pulls up in a chauffeured car. He's got a brown trench coat on, he's got a SJB fedora, he's got a smile wider than the Rio Grande, and he says, well, well, hello there, Parker. On page 10, the busy man gets right to it with Parker on the street, asking Pete if he has any new photos because he hasn't sold any to JJ lately. Pete says he's been too busy looking after his aunt and that he may have some soon. And JJ isn't bothered, he puffs his cigar, throws his head back, and blowing smoke through his smile shouts, Sure kid, sure, anytime. Just don't bring me any Spider-Man anymore. He's finished with the public now. <laughs> As Pete thinks, Yeah, <laughs> you won't go. We get another gorgeous panel of Pete walking away from JJ the Triumphant with his hands in his pockets, this time from the window of JJ's office as Betty looks on with a handkerchief in her hands. Pete thanks JJ for the get well card he sent May and says his aunt really appreciated. JJ says, what can I say? I'm all heart. As Betty, up above it all, wonders why she had to fall for Peter Parker and why she still feels the way she does. Pete's back in class next and of course, still thinking about how to earn some money. We're in a very uncomfortable loop right now. It's the first time I've felt in doing these issues that Stan was forcing things from one point to the next. This panel isn't really necessary, but the next is. We find Spidey suited and booted 
just latching onto the sheer wall beneath a window beside a sign attached to the building that says Peerless Paste Company. Spidey's got a plan. He's gonna get sciency. He wonders why he never thought to sell his quick stick webbing formula, thinking he'll make a fortune. He trespasses into the next panel, as Spidey does, into a room with two scientists. Both are wearing lab coats, one's balding with horn rimmed glasses and a black tie, the other has black hair and a purple bow tie. Bow tie screams, It's Spider Man! And Spidey says, Don't be alarmed, I've got a proposition for you. A business deal, so to speak. Spidey lands on the next panel saying they must have heard about his famous exclusive webbing. Genuine Spider-Man webs. It flips, it sticks, it gives bad guys the- Hey, this is PG. I was gonna say fits. Back to the bald doctor watching as Spidey sprays a strand from each hand says, This is most irregular, but we seem to be a captive audience. Spidey may just have a sale. In the final panel, he's gonna make sure he gets it. He finds the heaviest cast iron block in the office and with one strand of webbing, one strand. He attaches the heavy block to the ceiling as Baldy and Bowtie look on Thunderstruck. He's lifting that cast iron block as though it's a toy. On 11, Spidey standing on top of the suspended cast iron block in his best Captain Morgan pose finishes his pitch. How about it, man? Imagine if you could sell paste that was this strong. Bowtie can't believe his eyes. Baldy says with this, they can make a fortune on the open market. But a few minutes later, the block plummets to the floor of the lab with a crash as Bowtie screams, what happened? Spidey landing in front of it says, oh, don't worry about this. It just snapped. I made it so it won't hold too long. I didn't want my enemies to stay tied up forever. And Baldy says, that's the whole point, that if it isn't permanent, they can't use it. Spidey, sensing his deal is about to fall through, says, hey, maybe I can get it to be permanent. No worries. Baldy says, when you do, come back and see us. But right now, your pace is worthless. Bowtie's a lot more upset. We can't sell an adhesive that gets weak after a while. You just wasted our time. They point Spidey to the window and get back to work. Spidey web swings away in the next panel thinking, Nuts! That's what he I struck out again. Nuts. I forgot that my sticky webbing eventually evaporates. I could make it permanent, but it might take months of lab work. And I haven't the time. He lands on the next panel thinking things can't get any worse when he runs into none other than Flint's two-gun Marco, better known as the Sandman. And Sandman's excited. He says, well, well, looks like this is my lucky day. In the final panel, he and Spidey square off with the Sandman saying he's been waiting to polish Spider-Man off. But Spidey thinks he can't battle the Sandman, that if he loses, Aunt May will be alone in the world. Spidey holds his hands up and tells Two-Gun this isn't a time or a place. We turn the page and we got action, but Spidey's hell-bent on not trying to fight. Sandman turns his arms into anvils and immediately tries to take Spidey's head off with the right hook, screaming that what the people have been saying about Spidey is true. He is yellow. Spidey, ducking beneath an anvil arm, shouts, you fought me before. You must know that isn't true. I've just got my reasons for not wanting to mix it up with you now. Spitting facts. He leaps onto a nearby building and plays a oh. one-man game of Twister on the side of the building. Let me paint this. He's got his left hand bent and pressed against the side of the building. His back to us, his head near his bent left arm. He's got his left leg stretched out straight off the wall. His right leg, also straight, is on the wall near his shoulder. His right arm is stretched past his right leg as his fingertips cling to the sheer wall. That's right foot red, left hand green, right hand blue, agility on, best ever. All this and Two Gun is sanding up the wall, throwing another anvil arm at the webhead, screaming that of course Spidey has reasons he doesn't want to mix it up. And they all add up to one thing, you're a coward. While Spidey thinks that nothing's gonna stop this guy, from attacking him, and he's right. Spidey leaps onto an adjacent building as the Sandman throws a left angle in pursuit. And my friend Pete, my hero Spider-Man, my avatar has lost his edge. He's thinking, I'd love to turn and face him, to ram those insulting words right down his throat, but nothing is ever certain. He might beat me. I'm thinking, talent is a dull knife that will cut nothing unless it is wielded with great force. Ain't that Stephen King? More important, ain't that the truth? Spidey's wasting his talent. He leaps from the sheer wall onto a billboard in the next panel. Ha! The Sandman's still trying to crush him like a bug, but now they're out in the open. And of course, the powers cosmic and comic have a camera operator beneath them, witnessing the whole event while a massive crowd looks on. A man in matching purple newsy cap and jacket 
points up at the superpower game of Tom and Jerry, that's cat and mouse, screaming that Spidey's running from Sandman just like he ran from the Green Goblin. In the final panel, Spidey hits the street as Sandman turns his legs to sand and now 10 feet tall gives pursuit. Climbing over cars, spilling sand everywhere, still throwing anvil arms at Spidey. A guy in a purple suit and blue fedora stage right screams, Jameson was right! You're scared, Spider-Man! You're afraid of your shadow! A guy stays left in a brown suit, lime green sweater, and brown bow tie shouts that all of Spidey's past victories must have been publicity stunts and he was a phony from the start. And the worst of it all, the youth, losing faith, a blonde haired boy in a red shirt, maybe nine, maybe ten, Boo Spidey shaking a fist, literally. He screams, Boo Spider-Man, I bet my kid sister could beat you up. Being a girl's not a weakness, you little twerp. Hot Rod, kids shouldn't be sexist. I stand by that. Back to. On page 13, Spidey leaps over the crowd thinking he's lucky he's faster than Sandman, who shouts that he'll catch up to Spidey eventually. And when he does, dot, dot, dot. In the next panel, of course JJ's on the street pointing and screaming that they all get to witness Spider-Man's cowardice, while a guy in a newsy cap calls Spidey a crumb bum and says he won't have the nerve to show himself in public anymore. Meanwhile, that moment on the cover, with Spidey hiding beneath wooden planks in an alley like so much trash, we get that here, as the Sandman lumbers past thinking Spidey gave him the slip, and now Sandman better get out of here before the police show up. Spidey thinks that was close and starts changing back into his street clothes immediately. The whole time thinking that now, even Flash Thompson will give up on him and he doesn't blame the kid. Before Sandman pokes his head and an anvil arm around the corner in the next panel. Hey punk, did you see that spineless Spider-Man run past here? And Pete is sweating. Flop sweat. No, he was just racing along buildings. He worked up a sweat. Back to. Either way, Sandman keeps it pushing and Pete heads for home. He was so nervous in that moment, he forgot to put his goldenrod vest on. He's not even the goldenrod kid anymore. Just a kid in a blue suit and white shirt. Going through it. Pete enters the house and finds May alone and asks why she's alone. May says Mrs. Watkins, remember that's Watson, had to leave because her niece was gone and she needed to make dinner for her husband. Pete pulls a bottle of medicine from who knows where and staring at it, thinks to himself, this is what I've been afraid of. I can't take the chance of Aunt May being alone in case she has another attack. This is why I can't afford to find a Spider-Man. Gosh, we're almost out of medicine. And I get it, kid, but you've been almost out of medicine since page one. You gotta get over it and get on with it. In the final panel, Aunt May says she wishes Anna's niece was around, that she knows Pete must be so bored taking care of her all the time. As Pete in profile thinks, boredom, I wish. And so it goes. With each passing minute, things look gloomier and gloomier for the worried teenager. And the now jovial J. Jonah Jameson doesn't miss a trick in reminding the public of how right he was about Spider-Man. And Jameson's on television again, singing the same old song. I imagine it's What's New Pussycat. And now, we present a videotape rerun of this afternoon's top news story. The frightened flight of Spider-Man while the city watched in shock. Pete pounds his fist, the heads of allies, enemies, and average New Yorkers between him and the idiot box as he screams that the whole city, nay, the world, thinks he's a discredited coward and as long as Aunt May is sick, there's nothing he can do about it. JJ the Triumphant continues, saying he's going to replay the video in slow motion. This man must believe he's died and gone to heaven. The next panel, we get a jet of fire burning through the plug of a television set and an angry voice who's heard enough. That's it. I can't take any more of that grinning ape. I'd rather watch Dr. Doom reading nursery rhymes to the kitties. We're in the back of the building as Benji from Yancey Street sits on the couch in all his orange rock skin glory. Sue is behind him and the Long Island Igniter is standing in front of the couch, his right fist on fire and he's talking Autobots. Translation, there's more to all this than meets the eye. I just know Spidey isn't a coward. And Benji, his legs crossed relaxed, replies, sure, sure, and you still hang up your wooly little stocking for Santa Claus too. Knock it off, big buddy, I'm serious. Why would a fellow who's risked his life a dozen times against the toughest odds suddenly turn yellow? Remember, I've seen him in action, and he's one of the best. And Snoops Richards chimes in. I'm inclined to agree with you, Johnny. People don't change their basic nature without good cause. As for Spider-Man, I wonder. 
And then, acting on a sudden impulse, the youngest member of the fabulous Fantastic Four utters a dramatic cry and blazes through the window like a crimson meteor. And Johnny shouts, Flame on! And he's gone into the night. Sue wonders what her impetuous brother is going to get into. Reed says the boy's probably going to try to figure out the reason for Spider-Man's strange behavior. And Benji wonders who can figure out teenagers. Crazy. Who can understand a person trying to understand a person acting totally out of character? What strange behavior these kids are showing. The torch has flown over New York City and left a fiery message in the sky for Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Meet me at our last meeting, please. Torch is talking about the Statue of Liberty where they first met up in Strange Tales Annual Number 2 in October of 1963, the month Spidey first took on Doctor Doom and the Amazing Spider-Man. So that was a busy month for the old web spinner. Back to Pete sees the message outside of his living room window, but of course he's with Aunt May and knows he can't go. The torch lands on the head of the Statue of Liberty in the next panel, thinking Spidey has to see his message sooner or later. But as the sun goes down over the Hudson River, turning the sky a fiery red, Torch thinks if Spidey didn't come by now, he's not going to. We get a gorgeous panel of the Long Island Igniter sitting dejected on the crown of Lady Liberty. His head down, he thinks Spidey would have to have seen the message by now and wonders what could have changed him. And at school, Spidey's most diehard fan is having a tough time of it. Fiery Liz, her arms out like C-Sense is trying to convince an enraged Flash Thompson that his fandom of Spidey should end. But Flash won't hear of it. He knows Spidey has a reason for acting how he is and says the webhead will surprise them all very soon as the crowd around them look at him like he's crazy. Pete, entering the room, can't believe Flash Thompson is keeping the faith. In the final panel, the crowd laughing at him, Flash isn't deterred. Just you wait, all of you. You'll be whistling a different tune when the old web spinner proves what a great guy he is. Liz spots Pete and asks if Flash could be right, and Pete says he might be. And Pete's gotta seem like the biggest Spidey flip-flopper. When people love Spidey, he hates him. When everyone hates him, he loves him. Pete's not the guy to ask. In page 16, a masterpiece of art in eight panels unfolds. Panel one, Liz bursts through the front door of the Parker home. Pete grabs her up and asks what's wrong. She says she's worried Flash would be hurt. In tears in the next panel, Pete staring at her in wide-eyed, mouth-open shock, listens to her as she says Flash has decided to break his promise of never impersonating Spidey again. He's going to dress up as the webhead and prowl the streets, believing if he gets in trouble, Spidey will save him. Pete replies, That nut! That Spider-Man has enemies all over the place! Liz collapses into Pete's arm, blaming herself, saying that she kept teasing Flash about Spider-Man, but she didn't think he'd do something so foolhardy. Again, Liz seems to ignore exactly who Flash is. If they think Pete lives in Dolesville, population, the loneliest number, Flash is the mayor of the town next door, Foolsville, population, every enabler in Midtown High who cheer on his extremisms 90% of the time. Liz is first lady. Now Liz and Bowtie Charlie are confused because Flash is out on the limb of a tree they helped grow. Back to Pete says he thinks he can find Flash and asks Liz to stay with May while he does. The next panel, Pete's thrown his SJB blazer over his golden vest and the golden rod kid hits the street, pounding pavement. His spidey sense ablaze, thinking hopefully his spidey sends the text to Knucklehead before one of his arch foes sees him. Meantime, we see the return of the Brandex kid, Spider Flash Thompson, and he is getting suited and booted. His baggy spidey costume on, Pulling the mask down over his head, the Brandex kid thinks, So, they all think Spidey is washed up, eh? I'll prove he's as brave as ever. And we get a gorgeous panel of Spider Flash climbing a wooden crate to scale a wooden fence. Even though he's not Spidey, this kid is supposed to be the best athlete Midtown High's got. So seeing him scale this wall so clumsily makes me believe Midtown High is really bad at sports. Either way, when Flash puts that costume on, he thinks one thing. I might even be able to prevent a crime somewhere, and old Spidey will get credit for it. Wouldn't that be something? And it's only a matter of time before he finds what he's looking for. In our next panel, the Brandex kid falls down onto the scene. The scene? A car lot, where the Berber gang's Grand Theft Auto division is getting Grand Theft auto -y. We've got nails in a blue newsy cap, brown jacket, and orange sweater. We've got Pee-wee in a flat cap, 
red hair and green jacket, and Rocky in a brown fedora. Nails screams, hey look, it's Spider-Man, as Pee-Wee wonders how Spidey found him. The brand ex-kid thinks this is his big chance. He hits the ground in the next panel, and holding his hands like the fighting Irish, he starts talking his Spidey flash smack. Okay, turn around and march to the police station if you don't want me to drag you there. Pee-wee screams, what do we do, Rocky? The cops will throw the book at us. Sidebar, I chose the names Pee-wee, Nails, and Rocky because of the most dangerous, dangerous game episode of me and my friend Pete, and it makes me so happy that I already dubbed Brown Fedora Rocky, and his name is really Rocky. Spidey Kismet. Back to Rocky knows how to deal with Spidey. We're three to one. What can we lose? Let's rush him. And we got action. The Burbers rush the Brand X kid to open page 17, trapping him between two cars. And Flash didn't expect this, but he's got a lion heart, even if he is a dumb head. He thinks because the Burbers have no powers, he may be able to take them and gets right to it. He clocks Pee-wee with the left uppercut, but as soon as he does, the Burbers know something's off. Pee-wee screams, hey, what gives? He hit me, and I'm still conscious. Pee-wee has been knocked all out all types of times by the webhead. The fact that he's standing here after taking a blow, he knows something is off. And the Burbas open up shop like they're DMX. Rocky, in a full-on JJP suit, knocks the wind out of the Brand X kid in the next panel with a gut punch. As Pee-wee screams that Spidey must have lost his power somehow. Rocky throws a left hook, and Pee-wee throws a left cross as Spider-Flash screams, One at a time, fellas! One at a time! And Nail says Spidey's easy. They should tackle Daredevil next. I dare them. In the next panel, Spider-Flash, his mask askew, says, Three against one. Big deal. I bet I could lick any of you single-handed. And Rocky's starting to think this is an imposter who doesn't even sound like the real Spidey. But Nail says, Bump that noise. Ah, he must be the real McCoy. Nobody would be nutty enough to impersonate a guy like him. And at that moment, Pete leaps a brick wall in a single bound. No problem. His fight is drawing him ever closer to Spider Flash Thompson. As he thinks, I can sense him now. Right around the corner, having a fight. Losing. The poor guy. I'd better not even stop to change. Every second may count. But for once, the youthful web spinner has a stroke of good luck. And we get for the first time a black character in THE Amazing Spider-Man. And of course he's a cop because copaganda and white people were probably more willing to accept a black character if he were in a position of service. Also, they apparently think black people are golem gray skinned because Officer Blackman is gray. They've skipped right over every shade of brown and stopped one shy of literally obsidian black. Either way, my people, my people are in the building. Officer Blackman screams to his partner Irv that there's a street fight up ahead and Irv, two steps behind, calls the Burbos cowardly because they're jumping somebody in a three-on-one. 18 opens to Spider-Flash cowering on all fours, his hands covering his head as Irv rounds up Rocky Roberts and company. Blackman helps Flash to his feet and realizes immediately that this isn't Spider-Man. In the next panel, Flash removes his mask and he is punch drunk. He asks if Spidey saved him and what happened to the car thieves. And Blackman recognizes Flash from the football team. He helps Flash to his feet saying, it's Flash Thompson. I've seen you play on the school football team. I don't know what you're doing in that monkey suit, son. But from now on, I advise you to leave crime fighting to the law. And Flash says he wanted to prove Spidey's not a coward, that he hoped the webhead would swoop in and save him. In the next panel, the officers call Flash brave and tell him they're going to give him a ride home while in the foreground, Pete Parker, a handkerchief to his forehead, is pressed against the wall of a building around the corner. Flop sweating as he thinks, that was a close one. I just realized what a chance I took. If anyone had seen me running up that wall as Peter Parker, my secret would have been out. And Pete is killing me. The next day at school, he spots Flash and approaches the Brand X kid thinking he should try to convince the kid that impersonating Spider-Man is dangerous. He calls out to Flash Thompson who turns around in the final panel. Remember when I said he was cookie from Everybody Hates Chris? Shout out to Tashina Arnold. I was right because Flash has the biggest cookie covering his right eye. It is puffy, it is shut, and he is pissed. And Pete says, calm down homie, I didn't come to gloat, while thinking to himself, boy, what a beautiful shiner. Pee Wee's left cross was mean. 
And if anybody thinks I should have some type of sympathy for Flash Thompson, at the end of the day, never forget, Flash Thompson is a bully. One of the things why I believe he loves Spidey so much is because Spidey is a man of strength and power. So I'm not going to have any, aw shucks, that sucks for Flash Thompson. I'm not. He bullies my man Pete all the time. I'm not going to forget that. Kid got a cookie. Kid shouldn't have been out there trying to be someone who actually is a stand-up dude the majority of the time. Back to 19 opens with Flash pointing at Pete with a threat. He tells him he doesn't need sympathy from a nobody like Pete. And of course, he's got his green turtleneck on, so he's lying like a crocodile saying he was just about to beat the three crooks before the police showed up. And Pete hits him with the mass murderer Harry Truman's famous line. That's not the way I heard it, chum. While thinking the guy wouldn't let him be nice if he tried. In the next panel, Liz tells Petey it's probably best that he avoid Flash for a while because the guy's sensitive about what happened. And Pete's like, no skin off my back. That's the easiest thing in the world for me to do. Pete leaves the class, walking past Flash, who's got Bowtie Charlie hemmed up, asking if Charlie's the wise guy who said even Puny Parker could beat Spider-Man, and Charlie is saying, no, I never said it. Honest. While Pete thinks, things are getting worse. I may will need more medicine by tomorrow, and I'm still broke. Nobody but Flash has any use for Spider-Man anymore. And to top it off, Betty Brant won't give me a tumble. Where do I go from here? And what's the rule when it rains? Pete turns the corner and spots none other than his girl, Friday. Betty's in her green jacket and a yellow tiger striped blouse. Pete may want to speak, Friday. but Betty's not alone. Her arm Friday. is hooked on a handsome brown-haired boy. He's wearing a brown wool blazer and SJB tie. Betty has moved on. The young guy is asking if Betty enjoyed the movie, and if her smile isn't saying yes, her words do. Oh yes, I just couldn't stop laughing. The kid says it's still early and asks if she wants to go grab a soda pop. And Betty says that's the best offer she's had in weeks. While Pete looks on from behind the corner with a clenched fist. He lowers his head, braces on the wall, and sends all his woes to the ether. Face it, boy. You've lost her. How did this all happen? Everything seems to be tumbling down around my ears. Head down, his hands in his pockets, he meanders into the final panel. All my problems, all my tough breaks, are due to being Spider-Man. If I were just an ordinary Joe, Betty would still be my girl. And all the other worries I've got would just melt away. If you were never Spider-Man, you would not have had that freelance job. You would not have ever met Betty. Stop blaming Spider-Man for the issue. Your issue is your refusal to be honest with her about who you were. That's it. It's not Spidey. And to whom much is given, much is tested, Pete. That's just the facts of the matter. Finally, the unhappy youth reaches home. Pete, climbing the stairs, says May looks like she's getting better, and May says she feels better. In the next panel, Pete stripped out of his goldenrod kid outfit to his Spidey costume beneath it. He's pulling his Spidey shirt off, and he's come to a decision. When May's better, he's going to be the guy she wants him to be and retire out of the Spider-Man jazz. He tosses the shirt and pants into a collapsible hamper, thinking, I'll concentrate on my schoolwork, get a good job, perhaps in a lab somewhere, and settle down like everyone else. He crushes the hamper in the next panel, thinking he should have done this long ago, but he was too conceited. He throws the hamper into the garbage. I enjoyed being Spider-Man. It made me feel like something special. What a life that turned out to be. The next morning, Pete goes downstairs and is horrified to find Aunt May's wheelchair empty. Neuroses? Right away. He screams her name, and Aunt May walks into the room in the next panel. She says, quit all that hollering. I felt stronger, so I figured I'd give my legs a test today. And Pete races towards her, telling her she can't, that the doctor said take it easy all month. But May slaps Pete's hands away. She's not up for the fuss. She says, nonsense. I know when I'm feeling better. You don't want to make an invalid of me, do you? And Pete says, of course not, but... And Mavie takes her seat in the chair in the final panel, saying, but nothing, before adding, now listen to me, Peter Parker. And Pete's like, sure, what is it? And Aunt May gets inspirational to open 21. Pointing up at her nephew, she says, even though I'm an old woman, I'm not a quitter. A person needs gumption, the will to live, to fight. You mustn't worry about me so much, Peter dear. We Parkers are tougher than people think. And don't I know it, May. I've been trying to tell the kid. Dr. Pham enters the next panel saying he heard what May said and he couldn't agree more. May says she feels like a spry young 60 year old and Dr. Pham has good news on top of that. He tells May she doesn't need to take any more medicine 
and Pete thinks that's awesome because they've just run out. The doctor gives May a clean bill of health in the next panel, saying she has a lot of spirit and Pete should be very proud of her. I know I am. In the next panel, Aunt May's laying in bed as Pete stands over her and she's showing her gumption. She says she'll be alright alone as she wants to get back into the habit of looking after herself and Pete doesn't have to watch over her. And Pete, all smiles, says he's glad Aunt May is sounding so chipper. Then, returning to his room with a lighter heart than he's had in days, Peter sees... Pete's reading the bugle and says there's another story about Spidey by Jameson. This time, the miserable magnate is calling Spider-Man the greatest phony since the Cardiff Giant. The Cardiff Giant was a 10-foot-tall petrified man uncovered in October of 1869 in Cardiff, New York. The Giant was a fake. His construction orchestrated by New York tobacco man George Hall. However, at the time, debate raised over the authenticity of the Giant and it proved to be insanely popular to the point that Hall sold his part ownership of the Giant for $23,000 or $471,000 in today's money. When P.T. Barnum of Ann Bailey fame tried to purchase the Giant from the new owners for $50,000, they declined. So P.T. did the only thing he could. He hired a guy to secretly build a wax mold of the Giant, copied it, then put his on display, claiming the original fake was a fake. The quote, there's a sucker born every minute, attributed to David Hunnam, was born when people, convinced by Barnum's story, began paying the man to see his giant because they believed it to be the real one. There are levels to the swindler's game. Back to Jameson saying Spidey's as big a phony as that. Pete crumples the paper in his hands and he gets monologue -y. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe it took Aunt May to teach me something I should have known. Only a weakling quits when the going gets tough. Sure, I've had my share of bad breaks. Who hasn't? But I've been wasting too much time in self-pity. Well, I'm done with that. From now on. He pulls the collapsible hamper from the garbage to open page 22, saying Aunt May has enough gumption for the both of them and he doesn't have to worry about her any longer. He rips open the hamper in the next panel and his crumpled Spidey costume falls towards the floor as he screams, As far as J. Jonah Jameson, before I'm through, he'll be eating his words about me. In the next panel, we get a shadow on Pete's bedroom wall, but we know what that shadow's doing. As Pete screams, Fate gave me terrific superpowers, and I realize now that it's my duty to use them, without doubt, without hesitation. He gets suited, he gets booted. And in the final panel of this issue, we see, as he stands in a green spot on the floor, goldenrod light pulsing around him, the Daily Bugle clutched in his grip, THE Amazing Spider-Man, suited and booted in all his glory as he screams. And that means Spider-Man is going into action again. I'll fight as I've never fought before. Nothing will stop me now. For I know at last that a man can't change his destiny and I was born to be Spider-Man. We told you this tale would be different, didn't we? So far as we know, it's the first time in history that an adventure hero had no actual fight with any foe. But now the respite is over. Next-ish will feature Spider-Man fighting as only he can. So get those webs untangled and be with us when Spidey shows the whole wide world what he's really made of. The end for now. And we're out. You ever feel like you read something or watched something or saw something at just the moment you needed it? That's how I feel with this issue this week. It's easy to keep going when you're winning more than you're losing. But when those losses start to pile up and you go from Atlas to a bug under a boot heel, it can be daunting to try to find a reminder of who the heck you are. Me, I'm just a humble conductor, my people, but I tend to move through the world with great confidence in myself and abilities. I haven't felt great or confident or able lately. I'm lucky I have great friends and I get by with a little help from my friends. And I'm lucky I've chosen my heroes carefully, not the perfect ones, the most resilient, the most human, the most never stay down. Pete's the same way. He took a hit to his name that snowballed into a hit against his ego. And with the whole world calling him yellow, I'd like to think, knowing the truth the world didn't, kept him going in the faith of those that he least suspected, like the torch, kept him going. And the never yielding faith from a kid from Forest Hills who thinks he's the greatest, like Flash Thompson, kept him going. And his aunt, showing gumption, pushed him back and kept him going. Latch onto the things that keep you going and be thankful for them all. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. What an episode. But there is more. Me and my friend Pete 
available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week we're running through Kick-Ass number one, published in 2008 by Mark Millar and John Romita Jr., where we get up close and personal with the moment that changes Dave Lazuski's life forever. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join me. Head over to patreon.com slash HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to learn what happens when you try to police black and brown neighborhoods armed with white privilege and a lack of understanding. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to the home team, and we've upgraded. That's the Right Minders, the Big Three, the Key Keepers, and the High Council, collectively known as Parker's 11. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. You got questions? Send them to me in, my friend Pete, at gmail.com, and I'll go digging for the answers. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world, and be true to yourself, and never, ever give up. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.